Hello, this is Ken Stusen. I'm a partner at Brown Advisory. Welcome again to the NOW podcast. NOW stands for Navigating Our World. Through these discussions, we try to better understand the world around us, to navigate some of the most pressing questions that are shaping our lives, our culture, and our investment challenges. As we look to the future, whether we agree or disagree with each other, the one thing we know for sure is that none of us can figure this out on our own. At Brown Advisory, we are focused on raising the future, and we hope these now conversations will help us do just that. As I record this, the deadliest hurricane in almost 100 years has devastated the state of Florida, wreaking havoc on millions of lives, causing more than 100 deaths, and costing billions in damages. We can't say if Hurricane Ian was a direct result of climate change, but as investors, we do know that climate risk is real. To mitigate the risks and address the challenges posed by climate change, we've seen a massive acceleration of investment into renewable energy solutions. In this NOW podcast series, we're exploring that energy transition from fossil fuels to more sustainable energy solutions. I'm Erica Padgel. I'm the Chief Investment Officer for Sustainable Investing and a Portfolio Manager at Brown Advisory. In our last episode, I spoke with Dr. Atul Arya, the Chief Energy Strategist at S&P Global, who believes that traditional energy companies are important players in driving the transition to a lower carbon economy. As he says in the podcast, these companies know how to build things. They know how to put steel in the ground. I wanted to understand how traditional energy companies that were built on the foundation of fossil fuels are thinking about their future in a lower carbon economy. So I called up Allison Book, the Chief Sustainability Officer at Baker Hughes, a forward-thinking engineering and technology provider that works with many of the largest global traditional oil and gas companies. As you'll hear, Allison is passionate about science and about the role that scientists can play in striving toward a net zero world. I wanted to start by asking Allison about what it was like when she entered the energy industry at ExxonMobil and whether energy transition was discussed at that time. So back then in the early 2000s, the term the energy transition was only really starting to hatch. It was sort of in the next couple of years after that, that you started to hear a lot more dialogue and discussion about uh, climate change. And that was very much in the throes of what the world was talking about in terms of is climate change real or is it fake? That was the lens at the time. But when I came into the company, there were notable luminaries that were at the research lab, and one of which is a man named Peter Vale. And in he's widely considered to be one of the forefathers of a concept known as sequence stratigraphy, which is how uh, prospecting, you can use paleoclimate signals to help you find basins and really good, both carbon generation plays and traps. Okay, and so you can look at the climate as it was occurring in history to give you an idea on where to find oil and gas. And so hardly anyone really knows that outside of the sedimentology field. And that was one of the big draws was that you get to learn from some of the original titans of that that movement and that research specialty. So it was pretty neat. When I went up to the hill on a sabbatical, 
from Exxon, I actually got my sort of next awakening in seeing how the company was perceived from the outside, whereas my experience from the inside couldn't have been more different where we had real scientific discussion and I got to see data sets that were phenomenal and work on real world geologic applications that benefit society. And meanwhile, up on the hill, Exxon was cast as a bit of a villain at that time. So it was a really interesting learning and juxtaposition for me. Maybe we can stay on that for a minute and your time on the hill, particularly on the Energy and Natural Resource Committee. What role do you think that policy plays in the energy industry? There are a couple of groups of people. There are the people who are enlightened with respect to the role policy plays with energy and stimulating markets. And then there's like everybody else. Because I think to some degree, there's this still broad misconception that that certain things just happen because they happen or that a certain kind of signal, like the passage of the investment, I keep saying it wrong, the Inflation Reduction Act. In my mind, it's an investment bill, because it is. But like when they see that happen and they think, okay, this is gonna solve a lot and it's gonna happen like tomorrow after the bill passes, but that's just not the reality. And so it generally takes so many years in the run-up to a bill being passed into law. And then it takes many years for that to then go to the bureaus that implement it. It's a slow moving machine if you don't do it well. And when I was up on the hill, I, a lot of people would come up and say, oh, I've got this great invention. And, and they would tell me all about it. And, and then I'd be like, okay, that's great. And they say, if you just pass this bill, that would give us the money to do the following thing. I'm like, oh, just pass this bill, you say. <laughs> and then I said, I'll see you in about six years when we're successful at that. And so there would always be this misunderstanding between the speed at which policy could go in order to build markets. Now that said, you could easily cripple a market overnight, which is the smallest, smallest, tiniest change to a law or the implementation of existing statutory authority through things like an executive order or a secretarial order. But the role of policy is often misunderstood, but is a powerful market creator for technology. Allison, can you tell our listeners what geoscience is, the role that it plays in our usage of resources, but also how being an expert in geoscience has stayed with you throughout your entire career at ExxonMobil, on the Hill, and then, you know, where you are today? Geoscience is literally the study of the earth, right? And there are so many subdisciplines and specialty areas, one of which is petroleum geoscience, and then there are other ones like paleoclimate science. And so I got my start as a paleoclimate kind of person looking at soils and rocks as a proxy for paleoclimate indicators. I was really fortunate to apply for this great experience that put me up on, on the Energy Committee. It's a Congressional Science Fellowship, and it actually was hosted by the very organization that I then had the great honor of leading for several years. And I look at it as like, it brings it back around. But geoscience is still so important to society. And they see the nexus of policy and science together, creating big global solutions. And in the case of what we were talking about, like with climate change, if we weren't studying paleoclimate, we would never know like that interplay between what's happened historically in time skills and then where we're going today. And so, so geoscience is still critically important on everything from energy extraction to all of the minerals and metals that go into everything that we enjoy in modern society today. And then 
Fun fact, most mined substance on the planet. Do you want to guess what that is? I'm going to take a guess. How about coal? Water. Water. Okay. Everybody seems to think that it's coal or it's steel. It's actually water because that's an extractive process as well. For most of the groundwater that we drink now is, is you've got to drill a well and you'll need a geoscientist for that. And so the role of geoscience is, is alive and well today. You've got people who work in a microscope and then people like me who think about systems. And so to think about reconstructing a paleoclimate pattern, you've got to have the ability to think about the small parts and the large parts and feedback loops. What role do you think that traditional oil will play going forward in, in an environment of transitioning energy to more renewables and less carbon? So I've had this conversation with people that have been in school when I've been teaching that, that we're actually at the time in the world's history where it's the easiest for people. This is like the easiest living. Now tell that to someone in a developing nation, right? Because it's not easy for them. But as a global society, it's pretty easy now. It's because we have a really clear sectors that produce goods and services that make it easier to live, right? And so one of the most ready things that we all take for granted is food. And we take for granted the fact that we can go to a store and we can buy clothes. And there's a lot of products today that are available because we are still extracting and processing derivative pieces of the oil and gas supply chain. And so it's really easy for people to think if we transition away from oil or gas or coal, that society goes on much like we planned. But until you have viable substitutes on a materials part from a feedstock, society will be less good, okay? So there's a lot of great things that we have today that would literally go away if we didn't have oil in the framework. It's everything from waxes to, I have the suit that I wear fairly regularly. It's one of my favorites. It's pretty much derived all from 100% synthetic hydrocarbons, okay? And it's a beautiful suit and I can roll it up and put it in my suitcase and take it and it never wrinkles, okay? So much of textiles today come from uh, derivative products that come off oil. And you could say that about anything, like anybody who has a piece of technology, there's probably something that's derived because it's got a plastic component and we still haven't found cheap, long-lasting plastic substitutes that have cost parity today, by and large, but not broadly. It's going to be here for a long, long time throughout pretty much every part of society. Allison, I really appreciate the answer and love the suit story. You've spent your entire career focused on the energy industry. How credible do you think global oil and gas companies are in tackling the energy transition, not only today, but also in planning for a future state with less carbon. Interesting time, right? I would say over the course of my career, I've seen the pros and cons of any kind of energy type. Oil and gas is still very, particularly on the oil side and the derivative products, is still a very consumer-based output. So they sell directly to consumers. And for their company to continue, they have to be a really viable part of a different kind of diversification of energy. And the reality is there are no companies better suited to the sort of energy transition pivot than oil and gas companies because they know the consumer base. They've seen whether or not, especially when it comes to cars, what that looks like. People were unwilling to make a lot of the choices to stop their use of cars. And so they're understanding consumer behavior really well. The other part of this is that 
that they are foundationally, they've been tied into the tech sector for quite some time. They've been investing behind the scenes in carbon capture and storage for decades. When I worked on the Hill back in 2006, I was talking with Oxy and then BP about their Elk Hills project that was going to be a hydrogen CCS project. And that was a long time ago, right? And so these guys are really invested and they understand the market and how to go from an idea to a finished product that a consumer will use, which is electricity. And if we can't change consumer behavior, we can at least change the energy system around it so they have more choices. And oil and gas companies are a great place to start. Allison, how do you define energy transition? So how I define energy transition is there are two different ways, actually. And so there's the one that's out in the canon today that's related to its original use from 20 years ago is to mean the phase out of fossil fuels. So it's a transition to a lower carbon state with a, taking something out of the mix. Now, how we think about it at Baker Hughes, and I think that this is more broadly, more and more taken up, is when we talk about this as a carbon transition. And so literally getting the energy mix to a lower to no carbon state that's in line with net zero, like the, the IEA's net zero model has laid out. And so it's important to, to note that there are a couple of different ways the companies look at it. And we look at it the latter way, though I, we certainly always have to set the tone from the startup conversations to make sure that we're not talking about the original intent, which is no more fossil fuels. How is everything that is going on in Europe with the war in Ukraine impacting the energy industry and impacting this energy transition? Yeah, so there's a lot of things that people can point to. And certainly we can't tackle them all today, but there are a couple big macro kinds of trends. One is that suddenly Russia, which was a growth area for a lot of the, our sector in looking at the amount of reserves that, that are known to be there and what the long-term potential is, that changes that dynamic considerably. And the sort of rerouting of energy out of Russia has obviously hit the EU with pretty significant impacts that will probably be felt for quite some time. And so it makes for an interesting time. And I've heard a lot of people talking about Oh, well, it's clearly slowing down the energy transition. Then you hear people say, no, no, it's sped it up. The long and short of it is, is that it complicates things in a pricing situation. But really, we've got enough energy around. It's just how fast can we move energy to the areas that need it and make it affordable at the same time? And that turns out to be pretty hard. And then I'm going to put another thing that makes it even harder and keep the carbon intensity or the the absolute carbon emissions off the backside down. So so in some cases, it means there's a fallback um, to coal because they can still get it in different parts of the EU, for instance. And in other cases, people have looked at the role that LNG can play. And so if we wanted to go the way of talking about LNG, that's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out because like it's full disclosure, Baker Hughes is, is a pretty big player in the world of LNG. And we see it as a very credible and viable part of the energy transition because it gets your sort of cleaner energy. You also can move it around pretty easily, but you get to keep it affordable. Let's now turn to your current role. You are the chief sustainability officer at Baker Hughes. What does that mean? So it, <laughs> it means a lot of things, actually. But what it means here is under my purview is I came in really looking at energy transition. And pretty quickly after I got here, 
within about two months, I was sitting down with one of the members of our leadership team. And I said, the only way that we can really reduce our emissions to net zero as a company and for our customers is that we have to become a more sustainable company. You can have a goal and our strategic goal is to be net zero, okay, by 2050. And to be able to do that and help our customers to do that. But to get there, we have to foundationally change the behaviors of how people operate and make decisions under the banner of Baker Hughes. Okay. And so today, that's where we're still focused is really enabling energy transition support and activities. We look at accounting of basically of carbon molecules energy and renewables and all that stuff. But it's more broad now because we want to drive sustainable outcomes. And and for us, it starts with people at the core making principled, governed decisions that are very ethical. In that way, we can make the planet and how Baker Hughes works in it a lot more sustainable. Can you provide a couple specific examples of how you work with your customers? Sure. So I'll give like one example. We work pretty closely with Shell to look at how we can help them take their company out into the future to meet their sustainability goals because they have similar promises of getting to net zero. And then they help us think about that because one thing we're not is a provider of electrons, whereas they actually have been investing in um the creating power purchase agreements and bringing more and more energy online and electricity online. And so they've been working with us to help us on our journey. And then we've been looking at the technology that can be brought to their extractive part and then more downstream to help bring them to net zero. So that's one. Another example is we have some smaller companies that are in our sector. And I'm going to intentionally leave a couple of names off because this is sort of pro bono mentoring that we do because we want to take people with us. And sometimes it means that there might be another equipment provider, or it could be a smaller EMP company that's just getting started in their journey. And we sit down as a sustainability team and walk them through everything from, here's how to get started in looking at your missions. And here's how to start to frame up what a CR report might look like and why you need to engage your people. And then we have mentoring sessions with executives at some other companies to to help them just formulate ideas and be a sounding board. And so we have a few really great examples of that, that I'm really always quite happy to see those companies doing really well now. And then then we have some that are a little bit more like uh, in shared investment when we invest in clean tech. And so one that's really quite cool, more recent is the investment into a company called Mosaic, which has a membrane technology for direct air capture. And so there's a range of different things that's we acquire it, but then ultimately we'll have to find a business partner when we start to really scale up and test it so that we can we can do joint projects together on that more commercial uh, aspects of, of how we bring it from an early technical readiness and into something that's ready for a full market capabilities and scale up. There's so much discussion about the cost of implementation or changing infrastructure, changing services uh, in moving towards lower carbon offerings. Can you talk a little bit about the capital expenditure associated this for your customers, but also maybe talking a little bit about whether or not you think that lower carbon solutions can be one, affordable, but also importantly, can they be reliable? So on the CapEx side, there's a whole bunch of levers and abatement 
pathways that, that a company or a person for that matter could take that are pretty low to no cost. And so if people have done their planning right and really looked at um, the physical and transition risk to their company that climate change poses, you can look at the areas that you're already gonna have to mitigate risk on to your company and potentially adapt in real time as climate is changing. Those are opportunities for a lower CapEx spend to really buffer against the risk that your company is gonna have really negative impacts from climate change. And then how that goes on the abatement side, you get a two for the price of one if you're able to couple those together. And then the other piece of this is that today, okay, if you go back and you look at what the IEA was talking about, like even years ago, 10, 15 years ago, when I was on the hill even, the biggest part of the wedges model for climate abatement was really about efficiency, right? And everybody seems to have stopped talking about that. And so the first investment for companies has gotta be really on the efficiency side. And that's where you mitigate a lot of risk because if you're gonna have to change the HVAC system because you have an old building and it's gonna heat up and that's unreliable, you've got a chance to also abate emissions at the same time. That is an efficiency play was already a planned outage, it is not a huge additional capital expenditure. A little bit of planning means today shouldn't cost as much. Now where it starts to get harder for companies is in the longer play, as you start to go down your abatement curve and it approaches, it's not zero, it's asymptotic at that point, but as, as it flatlines, that's where You've got to have bigger projects like the one that I just talked about, like a direct air capture project that allows you to have technology ready to turn on at scale to make sure that you're keeping, as, you, as you've taken all of the carbon out of a company's system down to, the, down to the tail, that's where you need direct air capture or some kind of equivalent to abate those last tail. Allison, you've mentioned carbon capture a couple times, but Baker Hughes is also very active or has been active in hydrogen as well as utilization and storage. Why do you think Baker Hughes has pursued each of these from a strategic standpoint? And then secondly, how does your team set targets for these initiatives? So so we are in, we've been in geothermal for a really long time. Some things that are still barriers for that. Technology's ready, it's more of a policy problem The um, and capital. Then we're also in obviously CCS and hydrogen and we are in emissions management space. And then thinking about um, integrated power solutions, right? Suddenly that's a much bigger envelope than a, a traditional oil field service kind of business model. But everything that we have allows us to extend our existing capability just to a different problem set. And the investments we're making is just to continue to expand the envelope and be a little bit more dynamic and even more cutting edge on what we can offer down the road. So it's, it's well within our skill set and capability as a company to deliver on this. And so it's not like we jumped over into fusion, which would have been a pretty inorganic play for us, right? Uh, or, or nuclear, right? We stayed pretty core to strong engineering and geoscience. I just want to ask a couple more questions about your current role. We often get asked a lot about supply chain and sustainability elements. And within the oil and gas and services industry, minerals and materials play a large role. How do you think about sustainability across the supply chain? 
this is an area that, depending on who you talk to, some people think it's a bit of a boogeyman and other people think it's, it's where salvation lies, right? So you get really different kinds of answers. But I will say, in some of the conversations I've had over the last couple of weeks, there isn't a company that's not thinking about this in terms of their supply chain. Like Fortune 500s are really thinking about their supply chain, is, is what's my takeaway from Climate Week. Now, what's interesting is that we're a supplier and then we get a lot of stuff upstream from us in terms of how we get our equipment and assemble it or raw materials and the things that we make. And so our supply chain emissions make up about two to 3% of our total, all right, which doesn't sound like much, but like the real big part of our emissions come out of the products that we sell. But it's a really significant amount that still sits in supply chain, all right? Compare that to our operational emissions, which are less than a percent of our total. And so supply chain is meaty and how we look at it is looks in both directions. And so upstream, we're starting to think about how we could influence and help suppliers think about first reporting emissions so that we can move from modeling some of those numbers to actually knowing what they're doing. And the other part will be that, that we can be more proactive in the kinds of companies that we decide to do business with in terms of our supply chain and raw material side. Now downstream, we're a supplier. And so it's really interesting is that we try to set ourselves aside from some of our competitors as we propose solutions for bids and tender rounds when we've come in and said, we think we can do this. We can lower your emissions versus what you might get from another company or a different kind of product set. And we don't do it for everything, but we do this very strategically. My team comes in and models the emissions and we keep a catalog of what goes into that. And that helps to position us. Then if we can get that contract, um, what happens then is that the, our customer comes back and holds us accountable. I'm going to go back to Shell again. Um, they, they've asked us to be one of the first users of something called their Seth tool, which is a supplier portal that they can track how we're doing on a range of different issues. But, but predominantly, we're focused on our emissions as we've been reporting that. And ultimately, they'll get an idea about the things that we supplied to them, the emissions behind that. And so it means we have to have a fairly rigorous assortment of life cycle analysis on the products, as well as knowing what the, the category 11 emissions are for those products or services that we sold to them. So it's kind of interesting. So we look at it from both sides. One last question uh, that's related to your role at Baker Hughes. What do you think about the ESG environmental, social and governance headlines of late, where there's a lot of discussion about how ESG factors are putting pressure on companies, particularly in the oil and gas industry. As chief sustainability officer, how do you view this role of ESG inclusion and factors at the corporate level? I can answer this more broadly, and then I'll talk about it on a personal level here at Baker Hughes, right? So when you see that scrutiny come in, I feel like anybody who didn't think this was coming wasn't paying attention. Right. So anytime that there's societal change coming, right, you can expect that there'll be a different number of stakeholders that put pressure on companies. And this gets back to something I said earlier about understanding consumer behavior. All right. I challenge my team. I'm like, we're leading this here. We've got to walk our talk, guys. Last time we had a staff meeting, I asked my staff, how many people have looked at recently in this year? at their electricity bill, you want to guess how many people had done that percentage-wise? 
It was under 50%, <laughs> okay? And I was like, oh, that's kind of what I thought. I was hopeful that it would be more like 80%, but in the world of auto pay bills and things like that, people take it for granted and they don't look at it. But how can you know how to change your behavior if you aren't paying attention to the signs? So anybody who missed that what was happening in the world wasn't paying attention to both what consumers are unwilling to do and so the pressure goes back to the companies to do that for them, okay? So I actually think having the dialogue is always good because we can see around the world the already the impacts and, and we tend to call everything now in society is like a climate change impact, right? It's hard to say which ones are, are sort of happenstance. Uh, some of them are clearly obvious in their trends that we can pick out as, as weather is actually changing. But one thing that's certain is as sea level rises, we have to do more about it. And we should expect more and more scrutiny, not just on how we mitigate, but now on how we're adapting. So the focus on, on uh, transition risk is important. To how does it impact companies, but then also physical risk to companies and people become really important. Now, Baker Hughes. For us, this kind of scrutiny, it's happening, but the journey that we're on is a journey that we need to take for our company to become more sustainable. Okay, so while all of the outside world's important and we engage with our stakeholders all the time, a daily, in fact, I have a group that's called stakeholder engagement. And so, so it's really important that you keep an eye on these things, but I'll say it doesn't necessarily change our course or sticking with that. We're looking at how we can become more and more sustainable, both financially, and in terms of how people interact with resources. And, and people can push more on us. We're right out in front going as fast as anyone that I've seen out there, if not faster. Allison, do you think globally we will reach net zero by 2050? Ask me on a different day. I'll probably give you a different answer. I would say um, that one is a really difficult to call. Some days I'd say that when I'm feeling a little cynical, I'd say probably not. But then you never know what's going to happen in the world. And, and it's like one of the things that I watch uh, fairly regularly is that really massive ice sheet that's, that's in an article that people speculate like, oh, my God, what's the ice sheet doing? Because if it, if it really starts to melt and the base falls away, suddenly you're going to see pretty rapid sea level rise as a result of that, right? What if there's some externality? Okay, because I want to give you a data point. Let's pull back in the science. This is where geoscience is important. So the field station out at Mauna Loa that measures atmospheric concentration, earlier this year, they came back and said it's the highest atmospheric CO2 concentration in the last 4 million years. Okay. Now, to every person on the street, they probably don't even know what that means. But if you know about what the climate was like at the time, it was a lot hotter than it is here. And like, you know, it's a different kind of fauna on the planet. People weren't even alive. It was a very different space, but it was a lot hotter. Okay, so there's something missing that we're not accounting for because if it was just pure CO2, it should be hotter. So there's some part of a feedback loop that hasn't happened yet. And so what I can't predict is what else haven't we realized yet that's playing into the broader system of the earth and climate feedback loops. And so there might be something that really propels things forward and then suddenly everybody acts and does something to mitigate that. But then the question will be, will it be too late? But the optimist in me says, I'm very hopeful that people will keep trying to get there. If you had to summarize into a few simple points what you believe are the biggest opportunities and risks over the next few years, what would that be? 
I think there's the opportunity of companies like ourselves, like diversifying and getting in more areas. There's another opportunity of looking for low cost energy solutions so that we can bring developing nations along more and create more access to energy. That's all predicated on us not having disabling policy that would shut off certain parts of the energy mix. But what we don't want to do, the real challenge is when we look at the future of energy too narrowly. And so if people think that the end-all be-all solution would be to go to one or two energy types, that means we have less resilience. And then it puts more demand on other parts of our supply chain that certain kinds of energy wouldn't necessarily have pulled on. And so one thing that we've seen coming out of um, what's happened with Russia and Ukraine is that it did impact a lot of different supply chains, not just energy. And so we've gotta be careful to consider the knock-on first, second, third order derivatives anytime we think about policies that favor a specific outcome in energy. Let's keep things general. Let's go for a performance-driven outcome. And what we want to do in the energy transition, okay, dare I see the carbon transition, is to take the world to a low to no carbon state. If that is the outcome, let's incentivize that versus saying a transitional way off of one or two sources of energy. Allison, this, this was a great discussion. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you again for having me. Thank you for joining us as we continue this effort to seek out insights that help us understand our rapidly evolving world. If you enjoyed listening, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. In our next episode, Erica will continue to explore the transition to a low-carbon economy. She will speak with Raghu Balor, the co-founder and chief product officer of Enphase, a company which has revolutionized the solar industry with its super-efficient inverter technology and which now dominates the U.S. residential market. They will discuss the various challenges of scaling renewable infrastructure. We hope you'll tune in. Until then, be well and stay safe.